take them up and you bear them for us. Lord, I pray for them, for the ones that are hurting this morning. I pray for the ones that have so many struggles on their minds and on their hearts that they may not be able to hear this word from you today. I pray now that you would just take every one of those cares, every one of those problems, every one of those struggles, and put them under the blood of Jesus so that, Father, they can hear the word that you would have for them today. Lord, I pray for Brother Andrew. Minister to us through him in a powerful way in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Beautiful, beautiful song of praise. Amen. Uh, you know, that name Jehovah simply means I am that I am, the all-sufficient one. And I think the simple application for you and I is whatever you need, He is. And so that is the secret to life, is to get to God. I know in these last couple of years, what God has been driving home into my heart is uh, before you can do more for God, you need to be more with God. And just the importance of developing that intimacy with Him. Well, I hope uh, you received your uh, sermon notes as you came in, as uh, today we conclude uh, our three-part series on exposing easy believism. Now, if you missed uh, any of the previous messages, uh, I would encourage you to go to the church website, uh, where now you can hear an audio version of the messages on Sunday. Uh, But let's begin with just a very brief review that you see there uh, in your sermon notes. Easy believism equates saving faith with nothing more than believing the facts of the gospel. We've already seen in the previous messages that the fundamental lie of easy believism is that you can receive Christ as Savior in order to go to heaven without submitting to Christ as Lord. But as we have seen, true saving faith, as taught in the Bible, is trusting obedience. Uh, Let me say it this way. Any attempt to divorce Christ the Lord from Christ the Savior, or to divorce obedience from faith, is contrary to everything the Bible teaches. As we saw in the previous two messages, the Savior is Christ the Lord. So as God offers the gift of His Son for eternal life, you cannot divide Him. You either receive all of Him or you get none of Him. Those who refuse Jesus as Lord cannot use Him as Savior. And since obedience is the only validation that you have submitted to Christ as Lord, obedience is the primary proof of true salvation. Look there in your sermon notes at John chapter 3, verse 36. Jesus said, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Notice how Jesus used 
uses the words believe and obey as interchangeable terms. You would have thought he would have said, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. But he moves to the word obey. See, to believe is to trust, and to trust is to obey. Bottom line, if what you call faith has not produced obedience to Christ, you will not see eternal life. And the wrath of God abides on you, no matter how loudly you may profess Christ to be yours. Do you remember uh, the Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 um, equation we looked at describing true salvation? Remember, it's what? By grace, through faith, for good works. Uh, as we saw last Sunday, get these out of order and you are in trouble. But they are all necessary parts of the equation. Doing good works. Now listen, doing good works is not a condition for salvation, but it is the characteristic of all those who are truly saved. The faith that saves is the faith that works. The faith that saves is the faith that produces obedience. And this is why Jesus could say, you will know them by their what? Fruits. Not their profession, but by the fruits of their lives. So this morning, as we close this series out, we want to look at the evidences of true salvation. And we'll see three fundamental evidences of true salvation. This will be a good way to sort of review the previous two messages and uh, drive home uh, the key salient points And the first evidence is simply a committed life. And we've seen that throughout this little mini-series. A committed life. In the first message, we look very carefully at that next verse in your sermon notes. Matthew 7, verse 21. Uh, Jesus made this comment near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But notice... But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And again, we've seen already in the previous two messages over and over and over again that inherent in salvation is repentance from sin and submission to Christ, which results in obedience. And that's why Christ could make this statement, because obedience is the primary validation that a person has truly encountered and embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, do you remember how Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount? With a story. And what's that story about? Who can tell me? Come on, I know you know that story. Okay, I heard somebody say it. About two men. Two builders. One Jesus calls a wise man, and the other he calls a foolish man. Now, we often teach this story out of its context. And when we do so, we miss the primary application Jesus intended. Now, in our first message, we saw that beginning in Matthew 7, verse 13, through verse 23, right before he gives this story of the two builders, Jesus exposes easy believism by contrasting it to authentic Christianity. And he does this through a series 
of illustrations. He says there are two gates. You can either choose what? The small gate or the wide gate. There are two ways. You can either walk the narrow way, which is authentic Christianity, or you can walk that broad way, which is the way of easy believism. And then he says there's two destinations, heaven or hell. And then he says there's two crowds to follow. Either the few who find eternal life, those who repent of their sin, submit to Christ as Lord as they put their trust in Him for true salvation, or you can follow the many, he says, who profess Him, but whose hearts are empty. They don't possess Him because they've never truly submitted to His authority, to His Lordship, and therefore their destination is what? Hell. He turns to that crowd who loudly profess Him, and He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And then, in that context, Jesus ends His sermon with this story about two builders. His purpose, don't miss this, His primary purpose in giving this story is to reveal the fundamental difference between easy believism and authentic Christianity and to reinforce the fact that easy believism will never stand up against the test of God's final judgment, but it will collapse like a house of cards. So look at Matthew chapter 7. Verses 24 and 27, and uh, let's look at this story. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them, that's a synonym for obedience, and obeys them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against the house, and yet it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall." Now, before we look at the contrast between the wise builder and the foolish builder, please notice their similarities, because it is the similarities that make the contrast so shocking. First of all, Christ's story tells us that both men heard the words of Christ. Matter of fact, the word translated hears is a kuo in the Greek text, which means to hear in the sense of fully understanding what you have heard. So both men, both men, intellectually understood Christ's teachings. Not only understood Christ's teachings, they affirmed Christ's teachings. They gave assent to what He was saying. The second similarity is that after hearing Christ's words, what did they do? They both proceeded to build a house. They both made a profession of faith in Jesus, and then they began to build their lives on that profession. They both built what each would call a Christian life, and they did so very sincerely. The third similarity is that both men built their houses in the same vicinity. They were apparently neighbors because they were hit 
by the same storm. So the outward circumstances of their life were very much alike. They lived in the same town. They went to the same church. They heard the same sermons. They attended the same Bible studies. The fourth similarity is that they built their houses in such a way that outwardly they appeared to be the same. They probably used the same design the same building materials. Therefore, by just a casual observance, casual inspection, it would have been very difficult to discern the difference between the two houses. In other words, they both read the Bible. They both prayed, supported their local church, were responsible citizens in their community. From all outward appearances, they appeared to be Christians. But that is where the similarities end. What is the fundamental difference between the wise man and the foolish man? The fundamental difference between easy believism and authentic Christianity. What is it? Obedience. One thing and only one thing, obedience. Notice, the wise man acted on Christ's words, while the foolish man did not. As a result, Christ says, what? The wise man built his house on a solid foundation, while the foolish man built his house on the sand. The wise man built his house on the solid foundation of repentance from sin and submission to Christ, evidenced by the obedience of his faith. The foolish man built his house on a superficial, shallow foundation, a profession of faith, what, void of repentance, Void of submission to Christ. No commitment. Look at that great cross-reference. James chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at it himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Notice. This is all I want you to notice. The foolish man lives under the delusion that spiritually everything is okay. And why? Because he hears Christ's words. He understands them. He agrees with them. He thinks he's okay. He's agreed to the facts of the gospel. Despite the fact there is no, notice, commitment to Jesus Christ. He's not a doer of God's Word. And despite the fact there's no fundamental change in the kind of person he was. But going back to the foolish man in Christ's story, he lives under that delusion only until the storm of God's judgment. The rains, the floods, and the winds If you take this story in its context, are symbols of God's impending final judgment. The Bible says it is appointed man, what? Wants to die. And after death comes judgment. The wise man's home was built on the rock of faith's obedience to Christ. As a result, weathered the storm of God's judgment. But the foolish man's home was built on an empty profession of faith. That produced nothing, no obedience, no commitment, no fruit. And it collapsed, and it was swept away into everlasting punishment. Oh, the tragedy of living 
your entire life believing that you're going to heaven when at the end you arrive in hell. I cannot think of any more tragic deception than that one. So the first evidence of true salvation is what? A committed life. The faith that saves is a faith that produces obedience because, again, inherent in salvation is repentance from sin and submission to Jesus Christ. Jesus could not have said it any more clearer than in that next verse in your notes. John 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He will obey me. And my Father will love him. And we will come to Him and make our abode with Him. Look at the second evidence of true salvation. And that is a changed life. Not only a committed life, but a changed life. A changed life. In Matthew 7, verse 20, Jesus said, Yes. Just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Jesus is drawing an analogy from fruit trees. How do you determine the true identity of a tree? Wait and see what kind of fruit it produces. The point Jesus is making is very simple but also very profound. A tree cannot hide its identity for long. Sooner or later, it betrays itself by its fruit. The fruit cannot lie. How do you determine whether or not a person is an authentic Christian? Step back, observe, wait and see what kind of fruit. They produced. Are there the evidences of a changed life? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. For if a man is in Christ, he becomes a new person altogether. Now listen, beloved. Salvation is nothing less than experiencing the transforming miracle of the new birth. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. See, when a person repents of his sin and embraces Jesus as Savior and Lord in the obedience of faith, God performs a miracle. Jesus called it the new birth. Paul called it a new creation. Jeremiah called it a new heart. Ezekiel called it a new spirit. The apostle Peter wrote that God's children become partakers of the divine nature. That's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Now, in your notes, I have listed the seven distinguishing traits of the new birth, which are given to us in the book of 1 John. So, take your Bibles, open them up to 1 John, and let's just walk through these seven traits of the new birth and use them as tests to examine our lives. 
Remember one of the verses we've looked at in this study is there uh, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He says what? Test yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. So let's take this little test together. You let the Word of God, the Spirit of God, examine your heart and life to either affirm the authenticity of your Christianity or to expose easy believism. Look at the very first one, 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that He, God, is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. So, what is the first trait of those who are truly born again? What is it? They will what? And not just, not just imputed righteousness only, but they will what? They will practice righteousness. They will practice righteousness. See, in salvation, Christ not only took the penalty of our sin, but He imputed to our account all His righteousness. And that gives us right standing with God. But He not only imputes His righteousness, He makes us righteousness. Romans 10 says that with a man's heart, he believes resulting in righteousness. Now notice the simple logic of this verse, and you can't miss it. Since God is righteous, you would expect the children born of God to share his righteousness. Just like any child shares traits and tendencies of his parents. As a result... When a person is born again, he desires to live a righteous life. And through the empowerment of Christ, he actually practices righteousness. Now, let's be very clear. A Christian still lives in an unredeemed body, which the Bible calls the flesh, with its sinful desires, and therefore remains capable of sin. But the righteous nature within him creates a growing hunger and thirst for righteousness and an increasing dissatisfaction for sin. And that will be true of any person that has truly been converted and experienced the new birth. There will be that, that, that hunger, that thirst for righteousness, that increasing dissatisfaction for sin. And that will be lived out, not only in a desire to live righteously, but in practicing righteousness. And notice how this is reinforced in the next verse. Look at 1 John 3, 9. Just reinforces this. It says, No one who is born of God practices sin. Now, you need to go back to our study of 1 John some months ago. And it's very important to see the verb tenses. Actually, it's saying no one who is born of God can what? Continue to practice sin as habitual lifestyle. We'll see it more clearly. But why? Because his seed, God's seed, abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now again, the verb tenses clearly indicate that although a Christian is still capable of sin, he can no longer practice sin as a dominant lifestyle. He cannot persist in sin as a prevailing habit. And why is that true? Because the new birth, notice, because the new birth implants God's seed in the believer, which takes root and exerts a strong internal pressure towards holiness. 
A Christian can still be tempted. Yes, he can struggle with sinful strongholds. He can even fall into sin. But the Christian can no longer be content to continue in sin. Sin and a believer can no longer live together in harmony. The power of sin has been broken and a new day has dawned. Look at the next evidence of the new birth. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now mark it well. Mark it well. And this is not only true here in 1 John, but it's true in Jesus' teaching. And again, it's the entire tenor of the New Testament. A person cannot come into a loving relationship with, that, with God without becoming a loving person. And why? Why? Because God's light continually shines inside the heart of the believer. And God's light exposes things like hate, things like prejudice and racism, bitterness and unforgiveness and selfishness. At the same time, God's love is what? Poured into the believer's heart, providing the motivation, the energy, the empowerment to love others. According to John, love is the supreme evidence of Christian authenticity. On the other hand, what do we see loud and clear, not only in 1 John, but throughout the entire New Testament? Absence of love is evidence that a person, what? Does not know God and still abides in eternal death, no matter what he claims with his mouth. Look at the next evidence. 1 John chapter 5, the very first part of verse 1. It says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. In other words, another distinguishing characteristic of one who is born of God is that they believe that they're committed to what the Bible teaches about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. They distinguish between truth and error. And they're willing to stand on that truth, and they're willing to resist error no matter the cost. Look at 1 John chapter 5, the latter part of that verse. A second evidence. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. See, the new birth not only establishes an affinity and affection between God the Father and His child, but also among the siblings in God's family. I mean, this is not complicated. If God accepted you as His son or His daughter, then I am obligated to receive you as my brother or my sister. We are to accept one another as Christ accepted us. So when you put these two evidences together that you see here in the first verse of chapter 5, you see the two primary components of authentic Christianity. Yes, it is involved in believing certain truths, but also what? Belonging to a family. And so, yes, we believe certain things about the person and work of Jesus Christ, and we're unwilling to compromise on those truths. But we also belong to a family. And we embrace that family, and we love that family. Look at the next evidence of a person 
who's been born again. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now again, folks, our faith will be attacked. This verse implies this in that, in that word overcome. It, 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 it's a word talking about gaining the victory in a battle. So our, the believer's faith will be attacked. His faith can be shaken. We can even stumble at times. But in the end, a true believer's faith will be victorious. Why? Because the new birth brings the believer into a parent-child relationship with God, which nothing can alter. A relationship in which God gives His child the absolute guarantee that absolutely nothing can touch his life that God will not use for his child's good and his greater glory. That's what gives us our security as believers. That our faith will persevere because of God's commitment, because of God's guarantee. No matter what this world throws at us, no matter what Satan throws at us, God just transforms it into a tool for our good. To progress us in our growth and in that walk of righteousness, learning how to love. And that's why you can correlate this to Romans 8. It says we are more than what? Conquerors, overcomers through Christ who loved us. And that's in the context of the yucky things in life, the painful elements in life. And why can he say that? Because he goes on, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And God takes everything that touches us and he transforms it into a tool for our good. And then look at the last evidence of the new birth. He says, we know that no one who is born of God sins. Again, that's in the context of what we've already seen in 1 John 3. Cannot continue in sin. Sin cannot be a prevailing habit, a dominant lifestyle. But he who is born of God keeps him. That's a reference to Christ. And the evil one does not, what? Touch him. Now listen, the promise here is not immunity from Satan's attacks and temptations, but that in the midst of those attacks, we can never be snatched out of Christ's hand and become lost to the devil. Jesus said it best in John 10, verses 27 through 29. These verses are not in your notes, but there he said, My sheep, what? Hear my voice, and I know them, and they what? follow me. That reinforces everything we've already seen. They hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall what? Never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So what are the evidences of true salvation? A committed life, right? A changed life, the miracle of the new birth that creates a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and increasing dissatisfaction for sin that will be evidenced in the practice of righteousness. The change will also be seen, and as you enter this relationship with a loving God, He begins to transform you into be a loving what? Person. And then what? Believing what the Bible teaches, 
about the person and work of Jesus Christ, a belonging to God's family, an affinity and affection for your siblings, and then overcoming the world. And overcoming the world by what? Your faith. Your faith in what? Your faith in God that nothing can touch you that He can't use for your ultimate good and His greater glory. And then that great security knowing that no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. That all that have come to Him will never, never perish. Look at the third evidence. We'll move through this very, very quickly because I have so little time. And actually... Uh, we looked at this uh, not long ago in another message, so this is a really a good v- review. And that is a chastened life. In other words, evidence is true salvation. First, a committed life. Evidence is the, I mean, obedience is the greatest validation of a Christian's authenticity. A changed life, as we've just seen. Now, a chastened life. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 6. For whom the Lord loves, he what? Disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. This is another reason why a Christian cannot continue in sin as a prevailing habit. Because God will discipline. If necessary, he'll take you on home. Look at three ways that God disciplines his child. And these are all expressions of God's love. God's love for his child. First, protective discipline. You see this in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 with the Apostle Paul. So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given what? A thorn in the flesh. Now, folks, I find this one of the most reassuring verses uh, in the New Testament concerning God's love for His child and His protective discipline. In other words, what this is teaching us is God knows His children. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our vulnerabilities as we come to Him in faith. And knowing our weaknesses and knowing our vulnerabilities, many times he will practice what you can call protective discipline. Notice, Paul didn't say he was given the thorn in the flesh because he was proud, but what? To keep him from what? Becoming proud. God knew that Paul was vulnerable at this point in light of the wonderful experiences that he had had with God. So to keep him from becoming proud, God hemmed him in through adversity, stress and affliction, this thorn in the flesh, so that he would maintain his humility, so that he would maintain his dependency and his desperation for God. But not only protective discipline, notice there's corrective discipline. Look at Hebrews 12, verses 10 and 11. But God's discipline is always good for us, so that we might share in His holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It is painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. This is talking about when God takes His child to the woodshed. And when we don't heed His gentle warnings... He will give us a good spanking. He will take whatever measures necessary to get our attention, to bring us to the brokenness and repentance and obedience of faith. And then notice productive discipline. John 15, verse 2. He prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more. Again, notice this is a loving act. He prunes those who are what? That are producing fruit. For what purpose? That they might produce more fruit. 
And pruning is a painful process when God begins to cut away. And when you have to surrender that area to God, trusting that God knows what He's doing. We were talking with the Cason family. You know, there are those times, even when we can't trace God's hand, we must trust God's heart, knowing that He does love us, that He's committed to us. And He is too good to do anything cruel. He's too wise to make a mistake. But in reality, He's too infinite to explain Himself to our finite minds. Therefore, we trust Him to grow us, to bring spiritual health, and to bring spiritual fruitfulness. So those are the three primary evidences of true salvation. A committed life, an obedient lifestyle, a changed life, as we've seen that miracle of the new birth, and we saw those seven traits of the new birth, and a chastened life. So I encouraged you earlier in the message to test yourselves, as Paul exhorted the church at Corinth. Test yourself to see if your faith is genuine. So I need to ask you, are you the wise man or are you the foolish man? It's not too late if you have been deceived by easy believism. It's not too late for God's light to penetrate that darkness and bring you to the true repentance of sin and faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord as you submit to Him. And I pray that you'll do so because I don't want any church member of Edgewood Baptist Church to come to that time of final judgment, fully expecting to go to heaven and hear those words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Father, uh, speak to our hearts. Father, we live in a day and age where uh, Christianity has been so watered down. Um, So many of our churches have even taken a marketing approach to Christianity where it's actually discussed what's the best way to package Jesus that would make Him more inviting. And as a result, we present all the benefits of Christianity and we eliminate all the cost. We present a salvation that is absent of repentance from sin. We offer a salvation where submission to Christ is not required. And Father, we acknowledge as a result of such shallow, erroneous teaching and preaching, there are countless numbers of people who really believe they have their ticket to heaven when in reality they're lost. And, oh, Lord, you know my heart. I don't want anyone in this Edgewood flock to fall prey to easy believism. Father, I thank you for the ministry of uh, Brother David Howe. Close to 30 years. I thank you that He preached the true gospel. He didn't water it down. I thank you that this church has a long history of good, solid Bible preaching and teaching. Lord, at the same time, we know the prevalence of the preaching and teaching of easy believism through the TV, through the radio, through many of our pulpits. And So again, Lord, show mercy 
penetrate any deception. Bring us all to your true light and to true faith. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.